I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The guys have some Bibles. We want everybody to have a Bible and to be able to look on. So if you need one, get their attention as they make their way to the back. And they'll get a Bible to you. 2 Corinthians 5. In July of 2009, Bernie Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison for masterminding the largest financial fraud in the history of our country. Over decades, Madoff ran a Ponzi scheme that built tens of thousands of investors of billions of dollars. His long list of victims included movie director and producer Steven Spielberg, talk show host Larry King, Hall of Fame baseball pitcher Sandy Koufax, actress Zsa Gabor, and many, many others. Now, why did all of these people invest with Bernie? Well, it was because Bernie Madoff provided what no one else could, the absolute highest return on investment. He guaranteed a 20% return. And not only did he make that promise, he made good on it for a number of years. Now, unbeknownst to the investors, he was making good on it, not by making money in the market, but by using money invested from new clients to pay the guarantees that had been made to old ones. Eventually, of course, the house of cards collapsed. Investors lost billions and Bernie is in jail. The allure of all of that was the guarantee of great results. Now, in the investing world, it's to be expected that you invest for a return on that investment. You're not investing in charity. You're investing in stocks that you expect to yield a return. The very reason that you invest is for the return. But this not only applies in the financial realm, it applies to others as well. Whenever there is an expectation of return, then it's easy for the investment to be motivated by that return. That is, if I'm sure I'm going to get something out of it, then I'll invest. And as I say, in the financial world, that's to be expected. But what if you apply the same principle to other areas, like relationships? I'll invest in the relationship if I get something in return. I'll invest my time and my treasure if there's something in it for me. Now, a few weeks ago, early in our series in the book of Job, I had a message titled, Everybody Has Their Price. It was based on the opening chapter of Job in which Satan seeks permission from God to afflict Job because Satan is sure that Job is serving God with a return on investment mindset. He says to the Lord in that first chapter, Does Job fear God for nothing? Stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Now, as we've seen in the chapters that follow in Job, Job is greatly perplexed at the losses that God has allowed to befall him. The loss of his possessions and his family and his health. But he still trusts God. 
The faith that he announces at the beginning, though it's challenged mightily as we go on in the book, is not overthrown. Job says in that first chapter, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in those chapters that follow, we've seen that Job's friends tell him that all his troubles are because, Job, you're getting what you deserve. You reap what you sow. Guaranteed. In your relationship with God, they say, you get what you invest. Guaranteed. In the last two weeks, we've seen many day people, religious teachers on television who believe what Job's friends said to him. They believe in something called the retribution principle. If you do right, you're guaranteed to get good results. If you do wrong, you're guaranteed to get bad results. But Job knows that this is not absolute. Because God calls Job blameless in the opening two chapters of this book. And yet all of this difficulty has still come to him. Now those three friends were led by a a man named Eliphaz. And I called those last two messages comparing what Eliphaz and his friends say, I compared them to modern teachers. And I called those messages Eliphaz and the televangelists. But if you look at the top of today's outline, if you don't have that out, it's inserted in your program. I encourage you to get that now. You see that today's message up at the top is Eliphaz, you and me. And the reason is I'm convinced that it's possible for us You know, these last two weeks, many of you, I know because you've told me, have been amazed at some of the things these televangelists have said and some of the heresies that they propagate. And yet, I am convinced that it's possible for us. It's for us, possible for us to adopt a televangelist mindset toward God. A mindset that says, I do what I do because of what I get out of it. I don't serve God for nothing. I serve God for what He provides. Rather than God Himself being the reason that I follow Him and serve Him and love Him, instead, it's because of what God gives. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, told a story that illustrates this. He said, Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My Lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and he discerned the man's heart. And so as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours. I want to give it to you freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But there was a a nobleman at the king's court who heard all of this, and he said to himself, My, if that's what you get for a carrot, what if you give the king something better? The next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low before the king and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever willed. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you. And he took the horse and he simply dismissed the man. The nobleman was 
nobleman was perplexed. So the king said to him, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. You see, you were giving it in order to receive. You were giving in order to see what you would get. Friends, if we give God things in hope that they will earn us blessings or heaven, then we're really not doing anything for him at all. It's for ourselves. And it's only an experience of grace that changes us so we do good things for goodness sake, for God's sake. If I obey God in order to get things from God, rather than I obey God, hear this, to get God, to delight in and resemble Him and model Him, then I am doing something less than what the gospel of grace is designed to transform us into. Now, at this point, I want to acknowledge my indebtedness to Tim Keller and his book, The Gospel in Life, for some of the insights in this message as we go. At one point in that book, Keller summarizes the teaching of the great theologian Jonathan Edwards on this topic. And Edwards asked the question, what makes people honest or what makes people generous? And Edwards said there are two kinds of moral behavior. There's what he called common virtue and true virtue. The vast majority of people are honest for selfish reasons. (laughs) They're honest for fear of being caught or fear of bad karma. You know, if I do this, it'll come around to me. So we say things like honesty is the best policy. Or be honest. It pays to be honest. We don't want to lose out on those benefits. Now, these are good things, as indeed they are a way that God restrains the effects of evil in his world. And so I'm glad that people do that. I'm glad that people are honest, even if they're honest for wrong motives. But I'm not glad when Christian people are honest for wrong motives. And there's a profound tension at the heart of common virtue. Because if the main reason that people are honest is actually a selfish reason, then think about this. What's the main reason that people are dishonest? (laughs) Well, that's for selfish reasons too, right? So in common virtue, you've not done anything to root out the fundamental cause of evil. That is the radical self-centeredness of the human heart. You have indeed restrained the heart's self-centeredness, but you've not changed it. Ultimately, moral people who are being moral out of selfish motives are being moral for themselves. They may be kind to others and helpful to the poor at one level, but at the deeper level, they're doing it so that God will bless them. That's the religious version. Or so they can think of themselves as virtuous and charitable persons. That's the irreligious version. They don't do it for God's sake or for goodness sake, but for their own sake. Their fundamental self-centeredness is not only intact, but it's nurtured by this common virtue approach. And that can then erupt in very shocking ways. And it's why so apparently many moral people can fall into great sins. Because underneath the seeming unselfishness is really great self-centeredness. You know, that's why when we see somebody commit some crazy crime and then you find out that guy was a churchgoer. That guy was just... You know, went to work every day and loved his family and all of that. But you see, underneath that was this common virtue that at its root 
was self-centered. That's common virtue. But what is true virtue? Well, it's when you're honest, not because it profits you or makes you feel better, but because you're drawn to the God who is all truth and sincerity and faithfulness. True virtue is when you come to love truth-telling, not for your sake, but for God's sake and its own sake. That kind of motivation can only grow in someone who's deeply touched by God's grace. True virtue comes from the inside out. When the Holy Spirit changes us so that the heart is not only restrained, but the heart is transformed, it's changed. Edwards said, whatever is done, if the heart is withheld, then there's nothing really given to God. What is given is given to that which the man makes his end in giving. If his end be only himself, then it's given only to himself and not to God. If his aim be his own honor, then the gift is something offered to his honor. If it be his care or worldly profit, then the gift is to these. If the sincere aim of the heart is not God, then there is nothing given to God. So why have I had you turn to 2 Corinthians 5? Well, it's because in 2 Corinthians 5, in verse 14, the great apostle Paul, who wrote this, says this. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. One commentator says this, Christ's death was for the definite purpose that those who are given life via it, that is Christians, should no longer live for themselves, but for Christ. Christ's death, in other words, was intended to procure their death. Their death, that is, to self-centered living. The words, therefore, all died, signify the purpose of the death of Jesus to produce death to self. And it's in that context that in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, you have this famous verse that many of us learned as a child and quotes, and maybe you have cross-stitched somewhere. But we got to remember the context because verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. But what does that newness look like? It looks like a radical transformation of the heart that is no longer centered on self, but is now centered on Christ and others. So do you serve God for nothing? What do you serve God for? And I say in your outline, when we serve God for nothing, a number of things happen. First, desires are no longer self-interests. Desires are no longer self-interests. Now, the Bible teaches that at the root of everything that we think and say and do are our desires. 
So if there's going to be a fundamental transformation in any of us, it's going to start at the level of desire. What do I want? The Bible's replete with verses that teach this foundational character of our desires. Galatians 5 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sin nature with its passions and desires. And so there are desires. There are the things that I intensely want that are often motivated by the sin nature. But those who belong to Christ have put those to death, crucified those. Now, you might think then from a passage like that, that these desires are always for evil things, that they always have bad things as their object, but that would be incorrect. Very often our desires, as you've heard me say in the past, are are actually for good things. In James chapter 4, it says this, You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and you fight. Now, it doesn't say in James 4, the context there, unlike in Galatians 5, is not the sin nature. It is it is you desire, just desire, not necessarily evil desire. It may be for good things that you want so much that you're willing to sin if you don't get them. And that sin takes the form then of conflict in our relationships because the relationship is not providing what I want. And so here's what happens. Our desires, even for good things, our desires morph, change into demands. I desire this thing out of my children, but it's very easy for that to then transform into a demand that if I don't get that, then I'm willing to sin in its absence. I'll fly off the handle. I'll say things in a rage. I may hit my child. Or I may want something, desire something out of my spouse. Again, it may be a very good thing. A very noble thing. But it's easy for that to morph into a demand. If you don't provide that, I'm demanding you do this. I don't just desire this good thing. You better do it or else. And if you don't, there will be something to pay. You see, when we serve God for nothing, we have the right desires And if those desires are not requited, if they're not returned to us, then we depend on God. They don't morph into demands. When we serve God for nothing, desires are no longer self-interests. Secondly, I say, disappointments are no longer self-affronting disappointments. That is... It's not considered a personal offense that you didn't get what you expected. So when circumstances in my life go wrong, it's very easy to be angry at God or angry at myself. Since I believe that anyone who does good deserves a comfortable life. You see, that's that reciprocity principle, retribution principle. I do it. This is the way it's supposed to come out. These, these then disappointments are a personal offense because I didn't get what I want and yet I've held up my end of the bargain, I think. And you have a, a great antidote to that in the life of the great Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians where he is under house arrest for nothing more than doing what God has 
called him to do, preaching the gospel, but yet he finds himself under house arrest. Is he disappointed? Is he angry? This is what he says in the final chapter. Chapter 4, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And the guy's under house arrest and he hasn't done anything wrong. And he's content. You see, he's content because he doesn't serve God for something. He doesn't serve God for an expectation. And then when his, he's disappointed, then everything goes south. And he follows that up with another one of these needlepoint verses. <laughs> you know, we got all these verses that we memorized in isolation, but they're all in these kind of contexts. Here's the next verse. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. But in the context, what is it he needs strength for? He needs strength in the adverse circumstances that God has allowed to come his way. And Christ has provided that strength for him. So instead of when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself because of this disappointment that becomes a self-affronting, a, a personal offense. Instead, the way it should be is when circumstances in my life go wrong, and they will, yes, I struggle. But I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus. And so I'm not, I'm not looking first at God punishing me for this. All my punishment fell on Jesus, and that while God may allow this for my training, He will exercise His fatherly love within my trial. So with the stuff that's going on in your life, your circumstances, your relationships, how are you doing with all that? How are you reacting to all that? Because you see, friends, how you're reacting to all that says something about the reason for which you're serving God. When we serve God for nothing, desires are no longer self-interests. And disappointments are no longer self-affronting. And thirdly, words are no longer self-centered. When my desires are transformed, that's going to have effect now outwardly. My heart is transformed, that's going to affect the way I talk. That's going to affect the way I behave. So words are changed. And words that are directed not only to other people on the horizontal plane, but to God vertically. You see, my words to God are no longer going to be first and foremost about me. They're no longer going to be self-centered. So think about how you pray in your words to God. What do you, what's the first thing that comes out of your mouth? Well, if it's focused on God, and if it's about God first and foremost, then the first things that should come out of our mouth should be about God. God, this is who you are. And I glory in who you are. Now, let's be honest. Most of our prayers are our list. Here's the stuff I want. 
And you remember Jesus told us how to pray. In the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, my followers, my disciples, here's a model, a structure for you for how to pray. And in that model prayer, in Matthew chapter 6, there are six requests, six petitions. What's interesting about those six, to me, is the first three are about God. And Jesus says this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's the first request. Lord, I pray that your name be made holy, hallowed. And then the second request is your kingdom come. Lord, I desire your reign in your world. I'm living in this fallen world. I'm part of this fallen world. But my desire is for you and your reign in this world. Your kingdom come and your will be done. If my prayer life consists largely of petition, then that's a signal for why it is I'm serving God. My prayer life consists largely of petition and it only heats up when I'm in time of need. Uh, now we get really intense and I get, got it, you know, I'm down here, I've been asking for this stuff, I need it now. And so my main purpose in prayer is to control the environment, control what's going on. But if I'm serving God for God and for God's sake, My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose in prayer is fellowship with God. And this manifests itself profoundly in my words to God in prayer, but also, of course, in my words to others. What am I talking about and how am I talking about it? When I talk to other people, other brothers and sisters, am I talking about what's happening to me from a God-centered perspective or a me-centered perspective? When we serve God for nothing, desires are no longer self-interest, disappointments are no longer self-affronting, words are no longer self-centered. And I say fourthly, relationships are no longer self-serving. Relationships. Jesus tells this uh, story, gives this command, actually gives us command in Luke chapter 14 that seems strange. Well, it's because it is strange. And the reason the stuff Jesus says is strange is because his kingdom is not of this world. And so it defies conventional wisdom. But here's what he says in Luke 14. When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. All right. You know, November, Thanksgiving's coming up. So you guys pay attention here, okay? When you give that, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. He goes on, if you do, they might they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Well, why is that? Why will you be blessed? He goes on. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. 
John Piper has a long quote about that passage. Don't invite your friends and brothers and relatives and rich neighbors to dinner lest you be repaid in kind. What an unearthly argument. Danger, repayment ahead. (laughs) Warning, this repayment may be dangerous to your health. Who on earth would talk like that? Probably somebody whose kingdom is not of this world. Somebody who knows that a thousand years on this earth are like yesterday when it is gone. Somebody who knows that our life is but a mist that appears and in a moment vanishes away. Who knows that he who saves his life now will lose it later and he who loses it now in love will save it later. And who knows that there will be a resurrection to eternal life, a resurrection of the just to live with God a million millennia of eons. If indeed he was our God on this earth. No one ever spoke like this man, Jesus. And the people who call him Lord ought not be like any other people. Take heed how you hear. There are some whose first and only reaction to Jesus' words in that passage will be, well, he can't mean that. Because when would we have, we wouldn't have any more church suppers. (laughs) No more Sunday school socials. No more family reunions. Even the Lord's Supper would be wrong. And then having thus diffused the text and bent the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, they move on to the next passage and right on through the New Testament, justifying themselves and just like the Pharisees, manipulating the law of Christ to preserve their unruffled tradition and convenience. There is no better defense against the truth than a half-truth. And the half-truth is Jesus does not intend to end all family meals and gatherings of friends. But the truth is, there is in every human heart a terrible and powerful tendency to live by the law of earthly repayment, the law of reciprocity. There is a subtle and relentless inclination in our flesh to do what will make life as comfortable as possible and to avoid what will inconvenience us or agitate our placid routine to add the least bit of tension to our Thanksgiving dinner. The most sanctified people among us must do battle every day so as not to be enslaved by the universal tendency to always act for the greatest earthly payoff. The people who lightly dismiss this text as a rhetorical overstatement are probably blind to the impossibility of overstating the corruption of the human heart and its deceptive power to make us think all is well when, in fact, we're enslaved to the law of reciprocity, the law which says always do what will pay off in convenience, undisturbed pleasures, domestic comfort, and social tranquility. Jesus' words are radical because our sin is radical. And he waves a red flag because there is destruction ahead for people governed by the law of reciprocity. I stress the danger of living For earthly repayment, for ease, for comfort, for convenience, for tranquility. Because Jesus stressed it. Jesus said in Luke 6, 6, Woe to the rich, for you have received back your consolation. The rich are condemned because the use of their money showed where their heart was. They used it to secure their lives and pad themselves with comfort and luxury and consolation instead of using it to meet the needs of the suffering. There was a rich man, you remember, who was clothed in purple and fine linen. He feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate, Jesus told the story of a poor man named Lazarus, full of sores. He desired to be fed with what fell from this rich man's table. 
And the dogs came and licked the sores of this beggar. The poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes. He saw Abraham far off and Lazarus there. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in this flame. Abraham said, Son, do you remember that you in your lifetime received back your good things? And Lazarus, in like manner, evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Why didn't that rich man give Lazarus the crumbs from his table? Hear this. Because Lazarus was in no position to pay back. People who are always in transaction mode. I hang out with the people I like and the people that like me. The people that I can give, but I also get. That was the rich man's mindset. Lazarus was in no position to pay anything back. The rich man's life was governed by the law of reciprocity, by earthly benefits that he could receive in all his dealings. He wore the finest clothes. He feasted sumptuously. He did not inconvenience himself with the poor, that sick man at his door. And so he went to hell where everybody will go who uses his money to feast sumptuously with comfortable, respectful guests instead of using it to alleviate suffering of others. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. But notice, Jesus goes on to say, you will be blessed. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. That is, you will be blessed Because they cannot repay you. What an amazing thing for him to say. You know, you hear a message like this and you may be thinking to yourself, you know, I need to really brace myself up and get into some really solid self-denial now. And I'm going to work up my willpower to exercise some disinterested benevolence to other people. But Jesus turns that around and says, your self-denial for the poor will bring you great blessing. There will be blessing. Your benevolence is not nor ever could be completely disinterested. Indeed, your eternal interest is at stake. And so Jesus said on one occasion, it is more blessed to give than to receive. If you lose your life, he said, in love, for my sake, you will save it. So in the end, for those who obey Jesus, ultimately there really is no self-sacrifice. Because we gain Christ. Because we gain his reward. But in our relationships, we can be even unconsciously in a reciprocity mode. Those great theologians, 38 special, had a song called Hold On Loosely. It says this, it's so easy... When your feelings are such, to overprotect her, to love her too much. Just hold on loosely, but don't let go. If you cling too tightly, you're going to lose control. Now, do you see what it says? You, you know, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm this insanely jealous person. I'm holding on this tightly because I love her too much. Uh-uh, you love yourself too much. That's why you're doing that. You can't let go because of what? This other person is providing for you. 
But it's so subtle, isn't it? In our work, we put on and engage in charity events where our business can be advertised. Now, I'm glad the charity's going forward. But make no mistake, friends. These are not self-disinterested. In our relationships in marriage or other relationships, we have a a kind of 50-50 idea. I'll do my half, you do your half. If you don't do your half, this relationship's over. When we serve God for nothing, desires are no longer self-interest. Disappointments no longer self-affronting. Relationships no longer self-serving. Lastly, observations are no longer self-focused. Observations. Observations, for example, by others about me or you. You see, when I'm serving God for God, then that diminishes how much I care what everybody else thinks. And so I'm not a slave any longer to what are they saying about me or what are they thinking about me. And the great apostle was there. He was able to say in 1 Corinthians 4, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. But see, if you don't have this gospel perspective where it is God and it is for God's sake that I do what I do, then when I'm criticized, I'm furious or I'm devastated. Because it's crucial that I think of myself as a good person and threats to that self-image have to be destroyed at all costs. So there are observations by others about me, but then there are the observations by me about others. If my identity and my self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work and how much I do in order to gain favor, how moral I am, then I feel I must look down on those that I perceive as lazy or immoral. Do you see, friends, how subtle this reciprocity principle is and it shows up in so many areas of our lives i could give you more but i'm merciful i'll stop and so it's one thing for us in the last two weeks to look at eliphaz and the televangelist and to hear the heresies of those guys and gals on tv but where we really need to look where i need to look is in the recesses of my own heart why do i serve god why am i in relationships with other people And how I react when those things don't go the way I want will show the motivation for them in the first place. Your take-home truth is this. Christians, in the words of 2 Corinthians 5, no longer live for themselves. We're going to bow and pray. As we do, as always, and in every group, there are two groups of people. There are the people who have a relationship with Jesus because they have come to him believing who he is and what he's done on the cross and he has begun his work of transforming them from the inside out. And then there are people for whom that has never happened. For those for whom it has happened, you have a relationship with Jesus, but he has convicted you about your sin, the motivation for which you do the things you do. We confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we bow, that's what we'll do. But then for those of you that have never come to Christ, believing 
that he is God and that God has come as man to do what you could not do for yourself, to live the life you should have lived, to die the death that you deserved. You come to him in prayer now, believing that you are a sinner and he is who he says he is and did what the Bible claims. And you ask him to rescue you, to save you, to begin changing you from the inside out. So we say on the screen, realize you're a sinner, recognize Christ died for your sin, repent. That means you say to God in your own words, I'm going to go your way, but not my way any longer. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for the conviction that comes to us from your word and by your Holy Spirit. Lord, the heart of man and woman is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And in the recesses of my heart and our hearts, there are motivations that are not worthy of you. And so I pray, Lord, that that has been pressed home to us by your truth and by your spirit. And that your people convicted are confessing to you. Lord, I've seen that in the many things that I do and even the many good things that I do at the heart of those is my self-interest, my self-centeredness. I'm living for myself. It shows up when I get angry when it doesn't go the way I want. Angry at you and angry at others. It shows up in how I talk to you and talk to and about others. It shows up in so many ways. And then, Lord, there are those who came into this room who didn't know the good news of the gospel. That you have endeavored, you've taken the initiative to change us from the inside out. That you've made it possible for us to have a relationship with you Because God has come as man and you have done what we could not do for ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray that you're drawing some out of the world and to yourself right now in this sacred moment. And, Lord, for these changes, changes of position of one from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son, we will praise you for saving, delivering, rescuing. And then changes in values and allegiances in the hearts of those who are your children. We will praise you for that as well. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.